Welcome back to Burning Platforms, our podcast about the politics of technology. I'm Peter Lewis, joining you from our new home at per capita centre of the public square. It's a bigger project to bring to life some of the ideas I've been exploring over the past few years about how to build better models of civic engagement and countervailing power. The anchor will be our fortnightly podcast, which we plan to start recording live over the coming months. But enjoy this episode, which was recorded on Gadigal land on the 27th of February with my regular collaborators, Lizzie O'Shea and Dan Stinton, and our special guest, academic Dr. Nick Souza. So welcome to Burning Platforms. This is our first discussion of 2024. I guess we could call it um, an extended hiatus. The last time we were together was in Trades Hall in Melbourne, just before Christmas, where we were launching the new centre of the public square, which is going to be the home of Burning Platforms and a bunch of other projects which are trying to do public discussions in a different way. And hopefully we will showcase some of that work in Burning Platforms as we go along the journey. But we're also really keen to keep going the things that we've developed over the last three or four years with myself, um, Peter Lewis, for those that don't know me, Lizzie O'Shea, who is the slayer of corporate um, platforms in her day job and her chair of Digital Rights Watch in her spare time. G'day, Lizzie. Hi, Pete. And the great Dan Stinton, who joined us on this journey as um, Managing Director of Guardian Australia, but has now fully converted to Tech Bro, being the CEO of the exciting West Australian startup, Health Engine. Did I get it right, Dan? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll take that introduction. Sure, sure. Thanks, yeah, good. 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 good to see you again. Um, yeah, thanks. So we'll stick to our, our normal or what we, we worked through as a process that seemed to, to work for everyone, which each of us is going to bring an issue to the table and we're going to kick it around. We're going to frame it up as a question because I think my long-term dream is still to do this as a live town hall and get live feedback from the audience, but it's just us today. And we'll also then do a deep dive with a special guest who knows a lot more than me and probably as much as Lizzie and Dan. Today, we're really lucky to have Nick Souza, who is a name that anyone that follows the world of internet regulation and big tech um, would be familiar with, but many like me would never have had the pleasure of meeting before. G'day, Nick. We're really interested in talking to you both about your book, your time on the Meta Oversight Board, and now your role as one of Ed Husick's wizards. So welcome to Burning Platforms. Brilliant. Thanks. Great to be here. All right, let's kick it off. Let's start off with our first provocation. Lizzie is all over doxing. Now, she's not involved in it, but she's very um, engaged in the current proposal to criminalise the um, so-called doxing, which is the release of private information on the internet as she has been campaigning against for many, many years. So why the panic now, Lizzie, and what should we be thinking about when we're trying to work out whether this is a good step forward in the way the internet is regulated or something that's got hairs all over it? Yeah, so if you've been following the news, you will have seen that the government has proposed to and to introduce, we don't know the details yet, a criminal offence associated with doxing. And what what actually uh, is meant by that term is a bit fluid. Um, in general, I take it to mean uh, the release of private information with an intent to cause harm or how the Attorney-General has talked about it is 
that's done maliciously. Uh, and there's lots of different kinds of behaviour that might fit that paradigm. Uh, this has um, been, uh, I guess, come on, come to the table because of the release of a, uh, the contents of a group chat by a number of Jewish Australians, creatives and academics who were discussing various things uh, to do with what's going on in Gaza, including... Um, things that were very anodyne and boring and, and kind of a place of community support, but then also some things that were a bit more significant from a public interest perspective. And, and this group chat was reported on in the media uh, by journalists because it involved people organising and trying to have journalists terminated from their jobs, including Antoinette Latouf. But then um, the full chat log was released and this has caused a lot of contention as to whether this was a problem. Uh, and I, I remain a little bit concerned for a couple of different reasons, I suppose. Doxing, I suppose, in the way that we've defined it for now, at least, is already criminalised via a bunch of different criminal provisions that are associated with stalking and harassment and the like. So I'm a bit concerned about what might be caught by this particular legislative reform that isn't already uh, dealt with by we're in the criminal law. Um, but I'm probably more concerned because I think the there is an overlap there with public interest journalism that I think is quite difficult to navigate. In the context of how this discussion has happened, I think has to be um, kept in mind as we talk about it. Um, you know, this this was reported on by a, a media organisation before the full chat log was released, uh, and that was because there was a discussion around things like uh, external influence on the ABC, um, whether they'd been subjected to lobbying efforts and the like. And so, there's a real delicacy, I think, around um, what might con what somebody might call doxing, but another person might also call uh, is reporting on matters that are in the public interest. And I remain a bit concerned that journalists who are already a bit nervous about proposed privacy reforms, particularly the statutory tort and the direct right of action, who are concerned that that'll place a limit on public interest reporting, look at a proposal like this and feel concerned even more and, and start to advocate um, more strenuously against privacy reforms. So that's one of one of my key concerned. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, you can speak about this, Pete, but I, I know a lot of people support the idea within the general public, according to polling, the idea that you shouldn't be able to release private information maliciously. And I think that makes sense. There's a lot of this time, uh, there are a lot of instances where this does happen and a lot of online safety. But surely you could carve out a journalist's exception if that is the issue here. Like, I guess there's two things that, that strike me. One is that the release and publishing of information that people haven't freely given over is one thing. The second thing is the media reporting on that. Aren't they two different pieces? Yeah, but it becomes very difficult to work out how you articulate that in a in a legal sense uh, to cap capture one and not another. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think to some degree, there's a gap. The other the other instance that comes to mind in more recent times was when the government released the personal information of um, a woman who was caught up in the robo-debt scandal and had blogged about it. And um, the relevant minister at the time released public information about her that they'd obtained from the department. Um, I, I would say, they say to correct the record, but I think there was a the real argument that it was to kind of discredit the claim that she was making about robo-debt not working. And uh, she made a complaint to the Privacy Commissioner it was dismissed. And that to me seems like a really clear example of where a privacy complaint or there should be stronger protections for people's privacy. And I think there would be a benefit in having a court 
um, interpret these provisions more flexibly, say, than the than the privacy commissioner, I think, was too dismissive. So there's there's arguably a gap, but I think it becomes difficult uh, because where is that line around public interest reporting? Is there a public interest in reporting on that person, for example, having experienced um, a doxing of sorts um, in circumstances where the government claims it's correcting the record. I mean, there's got to be some assessment of power imbalances. And I think these things are extremely difficult to insert into drafting. And the potential is that it becomes a provision that understandably media become very anxious about, basically. It sounds a bit like the anti-trolling um, bill that we got a couple of years ago of the last government. Uh, you know, while there's ongoing policy reform. Do you have a sense of how this fits into the review of the Privacy Act? Is it is it a very specific narrow change to doxing or are we finally going to get the real changes to privacy that people have been lobbying for for years? I think that's a really good point, Nick. And one of my concerns about this is governments tend to have a knee-jerk response to fact scenarios and then they feel the need to regulate in response to that. And that's sort of what we saw with the online trolling bill with the last government. I don't, I'm not particularly encouraged that this government seems to be taking the same path. Doxing had not been mentioned at any point during the privacy reform pr process that's under that's unfolded over years. I mean, the government has said they want to introduce privacy, and I can understand some of the logic of some advocates who think, "Oh, well, here's an here's a way to get it moving," you know, to justify bringing the the more wide scale privacy reforms that the government has been talking about but hasn't actually acted on. And that may be true, but I, I do wonder about how we should be how important it is to be careful about not allowing bad laws laws to be made, even if they are in service of a bunch of good laws. Um, so it makes me, yeah, it certainly makes me nervous. And I think there's that other aspect, which is that mainstream media organisations, a bit like a red rag to a bull, Dan probably knows more about this than me, but, you know, if I was a journalist, this is something that would really make me feel I wanted to campaign against it. And already I think there's been a bit of disquiet and so that's my other concern politically. It may not serve the purpose that everyone seems to think it might. Yeah, I think yeah. it's likely to result in in even more opposition from the media than what we've had previously. Um, I think on balance I support it, but it does, I mean, I, I share your concerns as it comes with pretty substantial trade-offs and and also just some ambiguities which are hard to navigate. So, yeah, the, the, you've outlined the concerns from a journalist, uh, journalism point of view. I mean, I think one of the practical implications of this is that it also provides an avenue if a tort comes in as well for just one more avenue for wealthy individuals in particular to run interference on reporting because they can then threaten media organisations and hold things up with this new uh, anti-doxing uh, provision. So that's one part. The other part, though, is just, I mean, if you think about where this goes, let's say that they get the media exemption or, the, or, or whatever through as part of this. Where do you draw the line on what is a uh, what is public interest journalism and what isn't? <laughs> and we've talked about this before, but I still think it's a really live issue because what the outcome of this is likely to be is that um, your larger mainstream media organisations will be the ones that have the protection from this law, and your individuals uh, who are increasingly, you know, often doing a lot of real journalism. Uh, will will be cut out from this. So I think it's navigatable, but it will it will result in probably less of the latter and a strengthening of the position of the former. Now, maybe that's not such a bad thing because I think more people getting their information from reputable journalism institutions that actually have a commitment to the pursuit of truth is a good thing. But it does mean that we're going to see less of that. And I, I would make the point, I'm not, I'm not defending this as an argument, by the way, but the, the group that outed this group of 
um, of Jewish um, people claim to be doing it in the public interest. So it's not like there's going to there's going to be a clear line here of where what is legal, what is illegal, what is malicious intent, what is not malicious intent. What but they is weren't pretending to be journalists. I'm actually surprised at your guys' position because the alternate thing is if you could carve out journalism and there is a panic at the moment and the Prime Minister's talking about this in the context of privacy law reforms, surely this is how you land your course of action, Lizzie, because he's talking about both criminal penalties and civil um actions to protect people against the wrongful use and the malicious use of their information. So I'm surprised that you're um, you're front-ending with the concerns about journalism when it seems that if you take that away, there is an opportunity to deliver one of the really contentious pieces of the privacy reforms. You so you don't think it's poking package. the bear? You don't think it's poking the bear? I reckon if you get the, I reckon that if you can get the exemption in, they don't care about anything else. They really don't. Dan didn't. Did you, Dan? Oh, you did because you're part of me. <laughs> anyway, um, we better move it was, a diff- it was a difficult position to be, I, I, to, to take. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- I think there are legitimate concerns for media organisations about privacy reform, but we've covered this before. So I reckon I've lost that one two one. So I'm saying it is our best chance and um, you guys are saying save the media. So that's all right. Dan's provocation. Will OpenAI um, saw a save traditional media? We're talking about bloody media again. Um, <laughs> when we talk about technology, it all comes back to the media. But will it save traditional media or will it save traditional creativity or facts or kill it? Dan. Yeah. What so, is Sora? What is Sora? Uh, yeah, let me explain what Sora is first. And sorry to talk about the media again. Um, it's unfortunately where I spent the last 20 years. Sorry, Peter. So have you, by the way. So you should be welcoming this. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so for those that don't know, um, OpenAI released their latest um, uh, product, if you like, which is effectively a, a text-to-video generation tool called Sora. Um, and this is, I guess, the the most recent um, product development from them. You know, they started with ChatGPT with um, text-to-text-based to uh, responses. Uh, there was DALI and different versions of that, which I think they're up to DALI 3 now, where it's um, text uh, to image prompts. So you put in a whole bunch of text and it comes back with a, an image which is increasingly lifelike. And then this latest one, which um, Sora basically produces videos up to about a minute in length, um, just based on some fairly standard text-based prompts. So a few sentences were able to deliver uh, videos that looked, on first blush, like you know, real videos of people walking down the street in Tokyo, um, woolly mammoths walking through the snow. Um, there, there's a whole bunch. It's worth it's worth going and having a look at them. They're, they're pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so look, it, it's probably an obvious one because the whole internet seems to be talking about this at the moment. But nonetheless, I do think it's so consequential that it, that it bears us talking about it as well. And I think the issues that this raises is, uh, well, there's sort of three that I think, are, uh, three questions that I think are worth worth reflecting on. One, is it even possible to mitigate Sora from misuse? So um, I'm aware of uh, the safeguards that are being put in place around the world in the US where, you know, there's obligations on these companies to have watermarks for um, artificially produced content, including video content, I'm assuming. Um, My assumption, though, is that, and I guess, Nick, you'll have a view on this, my my assumption is that um, there's also going to be open AI tools which will be pretty effective at removing that watermark, so I'm not sure how... So is that going to be like a Shutterstock or something over the video or will it just be an embedded thing that you've got to go digging for? Well, my understanding is that it's both, but uh, because I think it needs to be something which is visible to the public, right? Otherwise, that's where the harm is going to be. But, again, I just think... Six fingers isn't enough for you. (laughs) Well, there's six fingers now, but pretty soon there'll be five would be my my guess. (laughs) 
um, yeah, there was a couple where people were missing arms as well in some of the videos, but they they turned up um, very suddenly. So, but nonetheless, they, they they are. I don't want to downplay it. They are pretty impressive videos when you when you watch them. Um, so the second point is, I guess this just makes it. Sorry to come back to journalism again. It makes it harder for journalists to do their job, right? Because so much, particularly when you're reporting on on places like you know Israel Palestine, for example, so much of the footage that is coming out of there is shaky footage filmed on a on a phone um it's going to make it even harder now for journalists to verify that there's already been many many instances where professional journalists have been fooled by content that is uh, that is not real or is from something different so it's going to make it harder for them to do their job but the flip side to that is my hope if you like maybe it's a naive hope it probably is but my hope is we've kind of been living in this world where there's been just enough misinformation and disinformation to fool a huge proportion of the population that are getting their their news from social media. My assumption now is that there's just going to be so much shit, excuse my language, so much misinformation and disinformation that the only place that you're going to be able to get reliable information is going to be from mainstream news organisations. And so maybe, just maybe, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, but maybe in five to ten years' time we're actually going to see in a circumstance where there's actually more trust in traditional media than there is now because it will be the only place you can go. And I'll leave you with one data point, which is mm. purely anecdotal and, and totally meaningless probably. But nonetheless, I look at what how my parents consume media online and they have a general bias towards trusting what they read if it's in text on the internet. And then I look at what my kids consume online and they have the opposite. They have a general distrust of everything they read online. Um, and I just wonder if maybe as a society we're starting to correct and adapt to this world which is going to be full of so much misinformation but uh a, re a, renaissance, a renaissance born of deep cynicism um <laughs> nick what what are the what are the questions in your mind particularly coming at it from one of the guys that's being asked to advise the government on how to get their heads around these new technologies well, first, I think that mainstream media still got a way to go to prove that sort of trustworthiness um hey, again redress that trust deficit. Some, some uh, more than others, Nick, but yes, go on. Some more than others. <laughs> so I, I I think I agree in that I just don't see any other way out of these problems. We Everyone right now is talking about trying to find some sort of technical fix where you label fake stuff. And the line about what is fake and what is real is actually, it's just not that easy when you've got your phone that automatically corrects and removes background elements that are in the way or changes your focus? Like, is that, does that become synthetic media? Do you get the same warning signal then um, in, when you post that because it's manipulated media? What, how manipulated does it have to be before you, before we um, shovel watermark on it that says manipulated? I think when you combine that with the fact that it's, there's going to be an arms race here to try to get around those sorts of detection systems. I, I just don't see how we get to a nice, perfect, controlled environment where everyone knows the provenance of every bit of imagery on the internet. Uh, that to me just seems like a pipe dream that's not going to um, not going to have the sorts of benefits that people are talking about. So I don't know. I think I'm with Dan. Um, we're just going to have to learn to be a lot more cynical and uh, we're going to have to figure it out with a lot more old school reporting and um, investigation. And uh, that's a social problem. It's not, it's not something that we're going to see with a quick technical fix. So there is an inevitable, 
inevitability about this, Lizzie? Is there any, like the new product gets sort of soft launched and we're already talking about how it's inevitable that it's going to take over the whole information ecosystem. <laughs> are, there any, are there any points of friction you can see and should there be? Uh, well, there was an interesting, um, there was an actual, actually an interesting article about uh, the database used for images, the um, image creation by Stable Diffusion recently, and they talked about how a number of uh, researchers had found child sex abuse material in the database and that they had to suspend uh, its use for a period, which I thought was interesting. I was asking somebody about what then since transpired in relation to that, and it appears to have just um there's been a, a view that we just move on. But um, I think, you know, that is kind of telling that there's this, well, I wonder whether that'll be a sticking point in the way that you describe, like how, to what extent do these huge um, data sets end up involving criminal material and will that be a bit, that, be that be any kind of limitation on how they're used? Possibly, but at the moment maybe if it, not. If it's a digital manipulation, is it still criminal? Think about child porn. Yeah, but if you've if you've acquired it and used it for a particular business purpose, that may be the offence rather than the you know the creation of the content itself, which I think would quite clearly be an offence. Even though there may be, it may be synthetic content, like there's no gen, there's no kind of material victim, I still think it would be an offence. Um, but so that's one interesting thing I wonder about because they inevitably these um, programs have have done a huge scraping exercise. They can't control what's in the data set. I mean, more generally, I, I do feel a bit nervous about how it's not just going to be used in myths and disinformation, but actually like flattening culture. That's my one of my big concerns. Like if you look at, I mean, I wrote about this a while ago in The Guardian of All Places about how I hated the Netflix feed Rapid that I had. <laughs> I hated the feed of my Netflix, which was all like strong female lead. And, you know, you look <laughs> at my partners and it's like gritty prison drama. And I just thought, oh, this is so <laughs> grim, you know, and what have I done? Like I didn't even do anything and it sort of happened to me and it wasn't intentional and I'm giving this, I'm being fed this, you know, just this stream of tedious, boring content that closes my, narrows my worldview rather than expands it, which is what art is supposed to do and create those unexpected connections and, you know, revelations. And that's one of my primary worries because I think about that in terms of um, of like Photoshop. Like women when they read magazines know that those photos are Photoshopped, but it still has a devastating um, impact on their self-esteem, even though you know logically that it's false, right? And so how does this, how is that kind of premise going to exist um, when the media market is saturated, when it's much cheaper to create this kind of content than it is to pay someone to do it, even, you know, or multiple people to do it, that that whole industry disappears and there's no humans involved and it becomes then about manipulating your mm. your deepest Freudian instincts. And, and that's when I start to get very worried about the flattening of culture, the dehumanising of people's experience of um, media or art or any kind of content. And, um, I think those impacts are a little bit hard to predict, but looking at previous examples, I don't think rationality is going to be the limitation on that, I suppose, is what I was But saying. to Dan's point, it almost means that you flood it with so much fake that nothing is real anymore, so you've just got to find somewhere else for your reality, don't you? Like, And it's really interesting, the final line in the blurb, Sora serves as a foundation for models that can understand and simulate the real world, a capability we believe will be an important milestone for achieving AGI. Um, but if it's all fake, then 
does it actually exist, Dan? The, the, the outcome of all this, and including that flattening of culture, which which you've spoken about, Lizzie, and I and I share your concerns, particularly with music, where I'm I'm so sick of the recommendations that Spotify is serving <laughs> up to me. That um, more fleeting fo- fleet foxes. <laughs> no, no fleeting, no fleet foxes. You know, well, I'll give you, you one example. Like, I, I went and saw a classical um, show the other day, which is the first time ever in my life. I don't like classical, but now all my entire well, I do like classical, but I don't really listen to it much. Anyway, now my entire feed from Spotify is full of classical music and it's it's not necessarily what I want. Anyway, the point I was going to make quickly is hopefully what this will mean is that in general, we are trained to become more intentional around our consumption. And if that happens across the board, then that's a good thing. My fear, mm. though, is that it will only happen for a small proportion of the population and the rest of us will become drones in the matrix. But um, a few, where's a few the optimism? Where's the optimism for the democratization of access yeah. to be able to like innate, give people the tools to create music, to create mm. video that they've never been able to do before, the sorts of things that were historically way too expensive for individual artists? Nick, we only like to be cynical and depressing on this show, unfortunately, so there's no, there's no space for that. You'll never be invited into anything that Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> creates, Dan, with that attitude, but we'll get to that soon. I'll just move on to our last little segment oppose the provocation is LinkedIn, our last chance saloon. And my theory here is that LinkedIn is effectively the um, Stephen Bradbury of digital platforms. It's the only one left. And when I'm thinking about how we can build this project out, yes, a news a newsletter and an email list is great, but how do you build the list? I left Twitter, as you guys know, when God left in late 2022, just after Musk had um, welcomed back Trump. Um, I don't really miss it, um, but I do lack a bit of a network. Um, the stats say LinkedIn is growing. It is still a horrible, horrible place. Not horrible the way Twitter was, where, as you guys know, I think everyone was on the toilet when they were tweeting, but everyone is so obsequious and everything is great news and inspiring thought leadership and so great. And it is a horrible, horrible place. But is it possible to make that place a a place to build community given that the starting point is an excessiveness of politeness rather than excessiveness of anger. Um, And if you were to do that, what would LinkedIn need to change to become less awful? Discuss. Who's on LinkedIn? How awful Uh, is it? And can we make it better? Perhaps I'll jump in first um, so you can all gang up on me and disagree with me, which I suspect is what will happen. There's there's two things that LinkedIn has going for it. Well, sort of one of these things is not necessarily a good thing. The first thing is, and you can fire at will, it's tied to people's identity. Uh, we've disagreed on this before, but I think that that is foundational to having a healthy online discourse. Um, comes with trade-offs, I don't deny that, but I think that that's the first thing that LinkedIn has. The other thing, which I guess is what makes the discourse um, healthy, but at the same time makes it kind of boring is the context. It, LinkedIn is all about people's professional career. And so as a consequence of that, you've got people's identity and you've got people's identity where there's real consequences to their career if they behave like too much of an asshole. The happy medium and that, would be... And that's really good. It's just that every day it's like they've got the full tie on. Can we at least make it Funky Friday or something? Exactly. That, that's, that's, that's the point I, I think I was probably going to make you you've articulated better than I would have but it's like can we have can we have a a medium which is where there is still identity so there's still consequences for behaving like an absolute idiot and you mitigate the bots and all the things but you provide a context which is more of a Friday afternoon drinks than a than a Monday to Friday in the office um so anyway 
you guys will no doubt disagree. Fire, fire it, Will. No. Um, Lizzie, what do you reckon? Where are you still going or are you totally off platform now? No, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. It, it never ceases to amaze me how much of my life force it sucks away when I'm on there. But it's not, um, I do understand the refuge because it's that people are unfailingly polite, which is maybe related. But um, I do, I mean, I must say I'm not against platforms where your identity is known. I just don't think that should be mandatory on all platforms. I think there's a role for those kinds of platforms, but they shouldn't be the total ecosystem because it does um, have ancillary problems associated with it, um, in, you know, including the right to dissent. Or, you know, you can imagine in other settings that where democracy is not the favoured system that it, it gives rise to, um, you know, targeting of, of dissenters. So I think it, there's a role for it to play. It just is so tedious and it does feel like... Um, but is it is it malleable? Because I assume that everyone on there realises how awful and buttoned down it is. Like no one is having a great time scrolling through photos of inspiring group shots of people in some B-grade conference area. Like surely people are interested in a little bit of professional discussion, not not trolling. Like is there, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm interested in diving in and seeing. I'm, I'm having a look. I've got to update my photo on it, which is still 1989, I think. So, um, <laughs> and probably update a few other things. Nick, what do you reckon? Is LinkedIn a place to avoid or is it somewhere where you've found any value? It's been really interesting watching this in from academia because we've never been on academics, like by and large, never been on LinkedIn before. Um, the rest of the world was was there and we um, managed to stay off. And now there's nowhere, as you say, very little elsewhere to go. Um, personally, I don't know, I share some of your unease. It's, uh, it's fair. There's a lot of self-promotion and uh, a, a lot of very shiny content that just doesn't feel like home in the way that, it, say, early Twitter was. I want to go back to pictures of people's cats and pictures of their breakfasts. That's the content that, that I really miss and don't have anywhere good to go for now. Maybe threads. Well, I was going to say oh, this is going to this is going to I'm make not a all of you die show. a little bit inside. But I've, I, I'm on Threads, and well, I'm I'm on everything, and the quality of the discourse on Threads is probably the best on out of all of them at the moment in my in my anecdotal experience. What do you it's put that down to, Dan? Um, look, it's hard to it's hard to say, but I guess um, Twitter became uh, and is still it, it just became such a place of. Um, performative pylons that it was impossible to have a conversation there anymore and it still feels like there's just enough civility on threads i don't participate in a lot but at least watching the conversation that it, it's it hasn't it's like early twitter in a way it feels like early twitter um and um probably another part of it is i've been a little bit because it's newer i've been a little bit more intentional about the people that i follow um and so probably have less of the legacy of you know, a thousand people that I've clicked follow without realizing why, and and so it's probably closer to my interests these days. But other than that, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe Meta are doing a, a better job of of moderating the content, although color me skeptical. A soft brand. Um, and what about Mastodon? Did anyone have a crack at that, or was it like me, just too difficult to work out too which many is doing? It's just too hard. <laughs> So, so the, the last bit on LinkedIn before we talk about the real topic tonight, which is unique, is um, so there, there was a um, there's a book that I'm still trying to get my hands on, but 
listened to a discussion with the woman, Alexandria Hudson, who's an American um, journalist who was writing on the notion of the history of the thoughts around civility, but also the difference between civility and politeness. And politeness comes from the words to polish and to smooth, whereas civility was to create the friction. And she actually casts um, Larry David as the champion of civilization because he will take on the rules of society and work to enforce it. And it just feels to me that that's where LinkedIn lost its way. It's too polite and not civil enough. So Mm. that's on brand for me anyway. Anyway, we'll see how we go. We'll report back on how we go on LinkedIn over the um, the coming months. So let's go into our deep dive, which is a very unstructured discussion with somebody who knows a lot of stuff that we're really interested in. It's you this week, Nick, and so thank you so much again for your time. Can you just start by sharing the journey of how a guy who's an academic in Queensland gets onto the Meta Oversight Board? Because it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that happens to everyone. I'm as surprised as you are, to be honest. Uh, I've spent 15 years, a little bit more than that now, um, researching tech governance and yelling at major tech companies. Um, and it never got us anywhere. So I, I distinctly remember inviting um, well, our research group, uh, research centre invited one of the lawyers, one of the top lawyers from Facebook, as it then was, back in 2008 when he was visiting Australia. And I got up and I did my my PhD spiel, which was, you know, people use these platforms all the time and they mean something and the connections mean something and the speech conversations we have are really important. Don't you think that that might give rise to some sort of like responsibilities on the platform's part. And I got laughed out of that meeting. I'm still a little bit bitter, to be honest, but I'm getting better with it like every year. Um, But the reaction from from the Facebook lawyer at that point was exactly as you can imagine. This is, that's absolutely preposterous. Your choices are you can take this free product and abide by our terms, or you can leave. And there's no such consideration as public interest values in a consumer transaction like that. And the platforms have, like, they really pushed that line um, to breaking point over the next 10 years to the point where uh, you get this big backlash against the social media companies and uh, governments figure out that it is actually possible to regulate American tech companies and they start doing it. And at this point, where they've lost that social license, uh, there's a there's a search for different ways to either, like depending on how cynical you are, to build back trust or to avoid further regulation. Uh, they're going to try to to rehabilitate that image and uh, work with people to um, both governments and and civil society. I saw a really big shift in engagement from sort of 2016 onwards um, with the US elections and everything else then that platforms were at least willing to perform how much they wanted to be good actors in society again. Uh, so Facebook's idea was to was to spend a, a whole bunch of money creating an oversight board 
Um, and for me, and what was year was that? When did the phone? When did the phone ring? Um, it was announced, I think, late twenty eighteen. Took about a year or two years to uh, work out all the details because there was a lot of. It's a very complicated system in order to preserve the independence as much as possible of the board. There's a trust which is incorporated in two places. There's a board of trustees as well as a as well as the co-chairs of the organization and a three-way confidentiality and um, trust agreement deal that that governs what everyone can say and how um, uh, who gets control over different bits of the way that the system works. So about two years from then and we started up uh started 2020 so i spent a little bit of time with facebook you know i've been spending more time with facebook over the the five years previous to that as finally they started picking up the phone um and then got this opportunity late 2019 to try to put some of the research into practice and did you have qualms or was it something you jumped at both i was i was terrified right so the so on the one hand like it's an amazing opportunity it's a ton of money given to this trust with guarantees of independence and guarantees that facebook will actually abide by the um the rulings that we make right and it's a we were talking initially $120 million. Now we're talking um, so far, I think $280 million investment US from Facebook in this wild, crazy experiment that no one had any idea how it was going to work. So yeah, I was I was pretty terrified. I was pretty apprehensive about um, getting into something that was just a, a way for Facebook to shore up their legitimacy that essentially I'd be selling out in order to uh, help them reclaim their image and get some trust back and avoid further government regulation. That's always on my mind. Um, but on the other hand, you can't go past an opportunity like that to actually try something different. Uh, I had to give it a go. Yeah, I remember thinking when you told me that, Nick, I, I, I probably would have taken the same attitude. Like, it's very hard to say no to that, but um, saying yes is its own particular challenge. What has it... I mean, I can't imagine it worked out how you expected in the sense that I'm sure it was difficult to know what to expect. But what is what has been the most surprising thing about it? Or what, you know, I mean, either pleasantly or otherwise. So pleasantly, I'd say we didn't crash and burn, um, which was a very real possibility, right? Uh, no one's tried something of this sort of scale. And this was, you know, 2019, 2020, there is a huge amount of distrust of the digital platforms and it's just not at all clear that we would get away with it, that we would be able to have real discussions about human rights and in a way that would actually have influence, positive influence on Facebook's um, both policies but also their, their broader approach. So I'm going to say it, I was, I'm surprised that it worked as well as it did to achieve those sorts of functions. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that it has, but we and we don't face those same sort of concerns of legitimacy anymore. I think the last four years, you look at the decisions that we've released and the strengths of the organization that we actually do spend a whole bunch of time 
with really smart people who've done a lot of research to try to um, get to the bottom of some of these really tricky questions. They're tricky normative questions about like what should be allowed on the internet, but they're also tricky because uh, it's been so hard to get information out of the companies about how they regulate. So that's what I'm pleasantly surprised with. I guess that has come at a cost, um, which is that we've become quite big and slow. Our, our benefit is that we are slow to an extent that we can take that time to two cases, um, but we've also become really quite specialized in that role. And it's made it hard because all around us, the industry has changed. All of a sudden you've got um, generative AI that like fundamentally changes what's possible to do automatically. Uh, you have a pandemic where Facebook goes from what, what are they, nearly 30,000 people around the globe doing um, moderation work for fairly low paid, pretty bad conditions, outsourced work um, day to day, clicking on images and making decisions about them. Most, I think, I don't have the exact numbers, but my guess would be nearly half of those have, um, um, were laid off during the, the pandemic. And I don't think those jobs are coming back. The, the companies have all switched on new automated systems that work, you know, significantly better than the old classifiers used to. And we've got to figure this out. Now we've got to figure out what metaverse and threads and uh, generative AI, Llama. The, You're probably famous. safe on the metaverse if we're honest with ourselves. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Nick, Nick, can I ask um, perhaps an obvious question and maybe given all those agreements that you had to sign when you joined the board, one that you're not able to answer. So uh, I appreciate that that might be the response. But um, obviously a lot of the stuff that the, well, perhaps not obviously, but a lot of the stuff that I assume that the board was looking at was content that was coming through from individual users. And I, I would be surprised if anything ever made its way to the oversight board that was from a traditional media organisation. Sorry to go there again. One of the things that I've been reading I guess with interest rather than with a stake in it these days is Facebook's response to the news media bargaining code, all the contracts in Australia are up for renewal now. Um, there's obviously similar laws which have been passed around the world or are being passed around the world and Facebook seems to be throwing its toys out of the pram in pretty much every jurisdiction where that's the, where that's the case. Do you have a view on, I guess, um, Facebook's position on this that you can comment on uh, and uh, I guess a view on the role of professionally produced journalism, news media on Facebook and social media in general and the role that it has to play in, in combating some of the things we've been talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the concerns of traditional media, of mainstream media about the content standards on Facebook as well as on other platforms, you know, they've been, they've been, uh, they featured pretty largely in the public debate over the years. The um, you have a fair few examples of uh, just you know, how bad the application of whether it's Facebook or some of the other companies' rules has been to shut down. You know, really quite clearly legitimate reporting. Um, we have taken a few of those cases, and uh, I think you know I, I, we've just finished one that'll be out again. Um, relatively soon, which is just a really simple case of very clear public interest um, reporting of a 
parliamentarian speech and uh, it was removed just because things get removed, mistakes. And you go back to Facebook and you say, why did this happen? And they say, oh, we made a mistake. Um, the big challenge is figuring out, you know, is there a way that we can make fewer mistakes in the future? But the questions you're asking here, I think, you know, this has been a, a really challenging problem for internet regulation generally. You don't, we don't necessarily want to take um, a view that, or a hard view that it's the organization that matters. Um, there's been you know, fantastic examples of citizen journalism and a lot of on the ground reporting for um, through the last couple of decades where the internet has played a huge role in getting extra material out. Um, so, but at the same time, I totally get what you're saying that um, there's something special about, uh, about journalism where you have a, a professional commitment to integrity in the public interest and uh, that we should view that sort of work differently. Um, where that leads us in sort of Facebook's case is this really vague sort of newsworthiness exemption um, where they try not to draw a hard line about are you a journalist um, but is the thing you're doing sort of journalistic? I don't know that they get that right but I also don't know that we get that right here in Australia as we were saying about journalistic exemptions from privacy or from metadata collection, all of these little carve-outs that you've got um, for media uh, across the law, across the different regimes, all of those are kind of fragile because... Um, isn't yeah, isn't the vibe, though, that Facebook wants to get out of media, it's just too hard and they just want to go back to cute cats and ads? That's what I hear. I hear that uh, media, that news actually doesn't make them a lot of money. Um, and that the the brinksmanship that we saw, you know, in Australia when they pulled pulled media. Uh, sorry, I'm getting this confused. It was Google that pulled. No, you uh, guys did. No, Facebook. It was, uh, yeah, not me. Not me. Not me. Not yeah, me. no, I know. Sorry, <laughs> that church and state. Church and state. <laughs> and then in Canada, um, like clearly, this is just a fight over how much money you pay right like it's that's all it is and it's two giant industries trying to figure that out and getting the government to to intervene in the bargain because there's no good way to value news um is this the best way that we can think of to protect democracy and protect good reporting um i'm not convinced but i also i just don't see a whole lot of i'm cynical here this is this is tough and it's business and it's it's advertising revenue can I ask Nick then um, about the question more generally about content moderation and whether it is possible to do it at scale? Like you talked then about mistakes being made and obviously as we move into a world in which there's more automated content moderation, is it difficult to play your role where you maybe don't, um, you know, the focus was should this piece of content be taken down and perhaps not intervening into the business model that, that um determines or sets the rules around automated content moderation. So to some degree, I sort of, I'm curious to know what your reflections are on that, whether, whether at this kind of high level, there's utility in, in intervening. Because the other kind of corollary of that is sometimes I think content moderation sort of has to happen at a granular level. It's like people in their own communities kind of essentially moderating each other's content, building a civil space between them. And that's the kind of key to a better internet. 
rather than the high-level stuff. But I can understand why that work can have use um, as a, a means generation tool or, a, a um, you know, a um, norms generation tool is really what I mean, sorry. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what your reflections are on that as someone who's into kind of that concept or that those concepts of governance? I think you're going to need a new, we are going to need a new approach, right? Content moderation as in like looking, manually looking at individual bits of content and trying to make a decision in as close to real time as you can you know, by a human. I just don't see how that addresses like a lot of the harms that people are worried about, not just of like individual shocking pieces of content, but the harms to democracy, the the sort of harms to civility, if you want to use that word, um, of good conversations online. You don't get that by playing with the with the threshold about what gets banned and what doesn't. You get it by through a social process of creating norms. But on the other hand, you're always going to need, I think, that baseline when we're talking about Sora and the sorts of stuff that um, that OpenAI is willing to generate, those are content questions, right? Um, when we're talking about, we've, we've already covered deep fakes and we've covered uh, child sexual abuse material, where there's a whole lot of those sorts of discussions where we do actually expect the major companies who provide these huge platforms um, for millions, billions of generations of um, pieces of content every month, that they've got to apply some standards. And so when you've got them applying standards and those standards are not just whatever is legal is allowed, then there's a lot of decision-making going on. And it's that decision-making that I think we can do better in the private context where it's it shouldn't be a decision of a CEO based on how they feel at any particular point in time. Um, we do need more principles over and more transparency, more accountability about how that gets done. Is it the only way? No, I think we, we need a whole new set of institutions that are going to be able to watch what's happening and uh, talk about the public interest in a, in a way that can actually um, make a difference. And we also then need the communities of people, the smaller communities, or the, at least the um, the tools to help relatively poorly resourced page admins and so on to be able to do moderation in a way that works well for their group. All of that, the, I think, will see change. Isn't the confounding element here, though, that the business model of both Meta and the other digital platforms is based on a surveillance of user activity and then the imperatives to get more and more information and target people. And we know all the revelations that say that when you roll people up and you give them what they want, they get more excited. So no matter how hard you try to sort of build that civil sort of safety net, the business models of these platforms is pushing against that all the time. And like, it feels to me that the alternate has to be like, are, are they are they manageable? Like, is it worth saving? I think this is the question. This is where we might disagree. Um, I think that where I, I do see a lot of benefit for major platforms. I've grown up in this internet. I, I love the internet. Um, I love the ability to connect with people and to get access to information and to have that 
network that is, you know, unlimitedly large, um, I wouldn't want to see us burn the whole thing down necessarily. Uh, can we get to a place where it's not completely toxic, where to it's not an existential threat to our democracies? Um, I think people reasonably disagree. People say there is no way to make it better. Um, I've got a with the I've current business models. Yeah, with the current business models. Well, well you, you can't you have giant also, networks. You, you could also just assume. Uh, less profitability. I mean, th there's a reason why news mastheads mastheads are barely breaking even or losing money, and that is because fact checking and the commitment to trying to get to the truth is expensive and hard. And uh, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looking at Facebook or Meta, it doesn't feel like they are taking those responsibilities seriously, and they're delivering record profits. And surely, it, it, I don't think it's ever solvable. Pete, I'm, I'm with you. Because the business model is always going to be in op running in opposition to to it, but they can certainly do it a hell of a lot better just by yeah. putting the decent amount of resourcing into policing this properly and actually trying to weed out the the harmful content. It's never yeah. going to be perfect. And to be clear, we're not putting better. Nick Nick on trial as Meta either. Um, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> the sins of the father or something. But do you want to move it on to the broader things that you've learned from that? And now you've been appointed to Ed Husick's expert committee, um, a bunch of different academics who all bring obviously huge, um, you know, knowledge and um, to, to the to the table. Do you know what that brief is and, and, and how, what will you take from your time working with Meta in terms of helping the government think through the challenges of whatever we call AI? So again, I think you've got that same sort of context where the people who are best placed to understand the risks and to mitigate the risks are private companies. And uh, the government's, like our existing mode of regulation where you think of, uh, you think of state apparatus like police and courts, they just don't scale to that sort of level, right? Like they play a really important role, but there's so many decisions that are being made on a day-to-day -day basis by private companies in a completely intransparent way. The When we think about the risks that are posed by AI, I think where we're getting to is that there's a certain, like governments are becoming a bit more sophisticated about how to intervene, but they're still it's not clear exactly what you would do if you're in if you're a government now about um, what exactly OpenAI should do about Sora. Like, how exactly would you change that technology and put in the um, the protections for public interest, not just from the like really intense harms of uh, um, or the really acute harms, say image-based abuse and so on, but also then that broader harm to creativity and uh, to trust and to um, democratic discourse, those ones that the law is just like really badly situated to deal with. Um, so I don't trust the companies to make those decisions by themselves. And I don't really trust the government to make those decisions with the tools that we've used in the past, like the classification. Which board. leaves us with civil society. Hello. And what's missing from the equation there? And Lizzie can talk about the frustrations in trying to 
of a voice in civil well, society I, in this I discussion? I was a little miffed that, um, you know, that was all academics. Not that I'm not glad you're there, Nick, but um, it's all academics. And then and then the minister kind of exceeded at the last minute and allowed a bunch of Oh, we better have the suits, observers. yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought to myself, well, that, that doesn't, that makes it even worse in my opinion because he's been put under pressure and he's given into that and there is no one there who doesn't have an interest um, in making money or, you know, who who actually represents community people like or you know isn't in the academy isn't in the ivory tower which there's a role to play but it's just that when you think about stakeholders and who you're trying to engage with it is frustrating to me that routinely civil society is left out like you know we've got a national data council and there's no civil society rep or even an attempt to engage with um representation from communities even though data about people is obviously I think instinctively you can understand why they think that they ought to have a say in how that's used. And so there's just this this missing part of the equation where governance is seen as something that's negotiated between governments, technocrats, technocratic and governments, and pri- yeah, and private the private sector. And I'm not I'm not convinced. Yeah, I, I think some of the polling you had that came out was interesting, Peter. That in fact there's a bit of a generational divide as to whether you trust the government or a private sector with your information. And older people tend to trust the government. Younger people tend to trust private corporations. I think there's a reasonable basis for saying neither, and that you need a watchdog on both. And I'm I'm not always can. I, I think there's a role for technocratic governance and getting the the drafting of the regulation right and the format. But there's also a role in democracy and deliberative processes where people have a say and we don't have we don't really think about government in that way I think in this country in the way that we ought basically but yeah maybe I'm just bitter but Lizzie gets flown around the country to be civil society on um (laughs) on her boss's coin but there's also like unions and consumer groups and community and I think it's becoming more of a public conversation um you know, there's that whole theory that you're going to get better technology if workers are involved in the way that it's being adapted at the workplace. The Luddites told us that and we've learned ever since, you know. So how do we, um, yeah, maybe that can be, you can be our interest there, Nick, and say you need more civil society. Because that was really what you sort of came out within your book, um, Lewis, wasn't it, as well? That you, at the end of the day, you need to have countervailing power to um, to negotiate some of these things without wanting to put words in your mouth. Yeah, look, I, I agree 100% with Lizzie here. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in tech policy and civil society in Australia. And it was, you know, I spent a lot of time losing battles where you would see industry compromise. Um, you know, maybe that's why I'm so cynical about the uh, the platform regulation debate, because uh, in every other example that I've been active in, You've ended up with the tech companies coming to a deal with the media industry or whatever it is um, for legislation that the government can can uh, claim declare success on, and that doesn't mess with business interests too much. And in Australia, we've just really struggled for to get um, good representation by civil society in tech policy debates. Obviously, Lizzie's been working extremely hard and very effectively doing that. But please, if someone's got more money to give Digital Rights Watch, well, um, they've got that's to invest in. You got to invest in the friction because it's the friction that's going to give you the better policy at the end, right? And so it's not actually a cost; it's an investment. That's a good pitch. 
That's all very nice of you to say, everybody. I mean, the other the other thing that I wonder about is like the European model, the alternative, where you have a bureaucracy that is where the they institutionalized the representation. And I mean, I think it's got its limitations, but I also understand better than that, nothing. I know. Well, it it is better than I think. Also, um, large tech companies killing regulation that threatens them, uh, as they've routinely done in the United States, for example, because they can they can just outspend everybody. Um, and you know, if I was looking to a model, I'm not sure I love the bureaucracy, but I also understand its utility. Um, what do you think about that idea, Nick? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think that Europe, you know. This is just such an interesting time in tech policy with Europe sort of seizing on to just how much power it has to be able to dictate norms to tech companies. And I really actually respect the way that a lot of, I don't think that the Digital Services Act or the Digital Markets Act or the AI Act or the Online Safety Act, um, Online Harms Act, that we're seeing, you know, they're not perfect. They're... They leave a lot of detail out, and frankly, I just don't know how a lot of the uh, proposals are going to work in practice. But I like that Europe is getting involved and that we're not seeing just this pure rule by industry that we have seen so far. Um, it's creating a little bit of tension. You know, we've seen, if we, we have seen movement in South America as well, where civil society and governments are willing to do a little bit more to get involved. Um, I just hope that there's enough variety to try some new ideas because everything's so cynical and horrible out there. On that happy note, um, thanks for your time, Nick. Great conversation. Could go for another couple of hours, but, you know, maybe people would stop listening. Um, do you want to do want to do a quick update on what things, like, I don't know if anyone's got anything to bring to the party, but... Um, we will we will keep running these now. Get regulation re, regulation regularity going so that we start building up a bit of a, a reason for people to log in, and then hopefully at some point over the next couple of months make it live and get people putting their own views and giving us feedback on some of our provocation questions. The other really exciting thing we're doing is launching a version of burning platforms called Open Dialogue for the disability sector that my friend Emmy. Ellie Demichelli is going to be hosting. We're going to start that at the end of March. We're building a big project with both disability um, advocacy groups and providers to sort of build a forum a bit like this to kick ideas around about the future of the disability sector. So that's going to be really exciting as well. Um, anything from Digital Rights Watch, Lizzie, that people need to know apart from No, we're just busy, office? busy, you know, working on various um, submissions. I mean, I am grateful for everyone being nice about the organisation, but Civil Society is big space. There's lots of other actors too. Yes. We're all doing good work and, yeah. It's a, you it's got the exciting. Parents for Privacy, I think there's a call on Monday. We do, yes. Yes. We, we did go and see the Attorney General and hand him a letter from signed by nearly 800 people and um, over 20, nearly 25 organisations all advocating for privacy reform. Uh, specifically because of concerns around children's privacy and the difficulty parents face in assisting their kids to navigate these online spaces. So hopefully that will contribute to long-term impetus for change in the space. Awesome. Hey, thanks, everyone. Dan, thanks for making the time from Perth. Better get back to work. It's not clock-off time yet for a CEO, is it? (laughs) (laughs) He just said you're stepping out for a call. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Lizzie. We'll all talk again soon. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot for having me. 
That was Burning Platforms, produced by Rebecca O'Connell on the lands of the Warundiji and Warrawal people of the Kulin Nation. If you like this show, let the algorithm know. Talk again in a fortnight. Thank you.